Today we're talking about leadership strategy and tactics, which is a field manual by the decorated Navy SEAL commander Jocko Willink, who was uh, part of some of the most intense fighting in the Iraq war. He also ran uh, training for the SEAL teams and especially leadership training. And he now runs a leadership consultancy as well. And um, yeah, why did we choose this book, Ari? Well, we chose this book for a few reasons. One of them is so that you could understand the appropriate leadership tactics to lead your dog to not bark during our <laughs> podcast. <laughs> I'm just dead, death glaring the dog. I think you need to help him understand your commander's intent better. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> no, but, but, but on a more serious note, the reason we decided to read this, I mean, so there's a few reasons. Like we talked about last episode, how we want to refocus on uh, more of a specific like leadership bent. So that's obviously part of it. Um, and this is a book very clearly about leadership. Uh, I think the other thing for me is that Extreme Ownership, Jocko's first book, is really an excellent book. Like, I really loved that book, um, and I found it to be hugely valuable to my career. You know, honestly, I think that I had a pretty ownership-oriented attitude already, but what that book did is it gave me, like, the words and the framework for what it is that I kind of already felt more instinctively. And I really appreciated that. And I found it useful for, you know, people that I've mentored as well. Um, I have the copy of that behind me. So I think for me, like, that's really why I was open to this book is just the, I, I love extreme ownership. Um, I actually think this is your copy that you gave me uh, oh, yeah. once upon a time. Um, yeah. But I love this book. I love that so book. And I like Jocko's podcast as well. Uh, I haven't been listening to it as much lately for whatever reason. I kind of go through phases with my podcasts. But, you know, he, he's put out a ton Same. of great content. I like the practical, you know, battle and business related examples. So, yeah, that's kind of my take. What about what about you? Yeah, I, I would agree with all of that. Um, to add to something on extreme ownership. Um, I think for me too, I, I had that attitude before I got in, into that book to a certain extent, but what, it, what the book did for me is like push that even further, you know, where for Jocko, like truly everything is on you, you know, like if the weather's bad, you plan a picnic and like you can't, the picnic gets canceled because of bad weather. That's still on you because you didn't account for that contingency. If you know, you're in a squad and like the machine gunner chooses the wrong field of fire and jeopardizes like friendly forces. It's on you, even though he did that because you didn't train him right. Or even if you're not the leader, you didn't remind him what his field of fire was supposed to be. So the, the depth of the concept for Jocko is like very like extreme, obviously. Yeah. Um, so I found that illuminating where it kind of like reinforced my best impulses. Um, no, I definitely agree with that, you know, and, and I think that part is unnatural. Like, that is a good point. Like, there is this idea of, like, it's easy to fall into, you know, there are things outside of my control, so therefore, it's not my fault. Yeah. But the I, whole idea and concept behind extreme ownership is that, yes, there are things outside of your control, 
but being prepared for those things is inside of your control. So it is your right, fault. Exactly. You do own that and you have the only you have the ability to control and, and change those outcomes. Um, and it's a really powerful attitude to take, I feel. Yeah, po- powerful and empowering, right? I mean, and I think that's the thing that's missed. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but at times I've found when I'm trying to take ownership of something that isn't, you know, obviously like my fault, but it is because again, you can draw that line. If, if I had done this and this and this, this outcome would have been better, right? Right. Like people around me will sometimes be like, no, you, you know, you can't, you can't like put that on yourself. Like that's too far, you know? But like, they don't understand that by doing that, I'm, I'm, I'm cultivating agency. I'm gaining traction on the problem. I'm seeing things I could have done. I'm preventing this from being this bad in the future. Like, it's not about my feelings right now. It's about like how we can secure better outcomes overall. Right. You know? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, you know, bunch of reasons to, to read this book. Um, what were your impressions? Um, yeah, my impressions, uh, my impressions my impression of this book in general and this philosophy in general is it's extremely effective. Um, it's not what you would expect. It's subtle. It's emotionally challenging because a lot of it is about like detaching, subordinating your ego, being sophisticated, influencing people, building relationships with people you might not always get along with, putting the team first. You know, these are all like um, the, the unglamorous ego ego bruising small things that you need to do to lead effectively and that's what this whole philosophy is about it's like not what's going to make us feel good or what's emotionally satisfying but what's going to be effective um so i really love that about it yeah no i I definitely agree with that i think that so this book was interesting for me because i thought that so the philosophy i completely agree with i really do think Jocko has a great approach to leadership. Um, I think it's very sophisticated, like you said, and it is really focused on like getting the best out of your people. And it's not what, you know, an external observer who hears, okay, here's a Navy SEAL commander or even like looks and sees what Jocko looks like <laughs> yeah, <laughs> would, would expect to, to be his, his attitude and his approach. Yeah. Um, what I will say is that personally compared to extreme ownership, I found this book was not as well written. Um, and, and at, at times it felt uh, like some of the dialogue and stuff felt really like forced and mechanical <laughs> to me. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Um, and, and it also like, you know, the thing that I, I totally understand and I think is totally fair is that it's kind of turned into a system now, right? And he has this yeah, chapter where yeah. he talks about extreme ownership and the dichotomy of leadership and you apply the principles of combat and then the, you know, leadership strategy and tactics. And that one chapter did feel a bit like uh, a sales pitch for the rest of his books to me. Um, That's fair. <laughs> which I didn't love, but again, I completely understand it. Like ultimately he is running a business and also he is trying to create like a system, right? He's trying to say like, here are how all of these things tie together. So, so I understand yeah, yeah. that. But 
what I really liked about extreme ownership um, that I missed a little bit in this book was just this, like extreme ownership was very like, I guess, sincere in a way. Not that this book isn't sincere. I think it is, but it's like, it's not coming from a place of, you know, this has to fit into this system in this way. It's like, yeah. this is actually like what I taught the SEALs when I came back from Ramadi. Um, right, right. Whereas now he's had a lot more time to kind of reflect on things and, and systematize and rationalize. So it feels a little more, I guess, manufactured than extreme ownership did to me. Yeah, yeah. I, I, think, I think that's fair. I think extreme ownership is more like a treatise, you know, like it's part memoir. And then it's much more focused in a way. It's like just the four laws of combat, basically, like, and the concept of extreme ownership account for the whole book. Whereas this is more of like, a, you know, everything in the kitchen sink, how to guide and all the different leadership scenarios you could like come into contact with, you know? Yeah. So yeah. it's like, you're, you're super experienced and you're a new leader. You're an established leader. You're taking over uh, a squad that isn't performing. It is performing, you know, you're managing people who are more experienced, like all those different various scenarios. Right. Um, so I would say less readable book, but but also like a, a useful useful book if you're a leader to kind of go back to and be like, oh, I'm in this new scenario. Like, you know, what are, what's some food for thought for this from a person who's like de- dealt with it? You know, dealt with the red tape, dealt with the human emotions, dealt with the uh, the big egos and like the messy organizational kind of like problems, um, and managed to kind of find a way and like thread, thread the needle. Um, yeah, I definitely agree with that. I, th- I think it's honestly, I think it's a book that I'll probably refer back to, you know, throughout my career just for like these little reminders. Right. I mean, like you said, it, it, it's taking these concepts and applying them to like specific, um, specific scenarios and i definitely think that's useful and there's a lot of value in that you know yeah like one thing you know i read this book before i worked at this one startup and he has a section on this in this book about ego right where it's like you're dealing with someone and they have a huge ego they just like uh, are super full of themselves they think they have this great background and they're not taking your feedback on board and then he realizes wait it's actually my ego like our egos are clashing because I have an ego and he goes and like, you know, compliments this guy who's whatever, like an NCAA athlete with an Ivy league MBA. Um, and all of a sudden, like all the tension, like just dissolves and he's able to like build this great relationship with this guy when previously, like he thought the guy was a complete asshole. Um, and when I was at that company, like I was in a similar situation and uh, I, I, I needed that reminder, you know, because I thought th- that the other guy had a huge ego and like he was a complete prick and maybe he was. But I think also it was probably my ego that was like, you know, fueling that clash. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I thought that was definitely a good example. And I think throughout this book, you know, one of the most common themes is just like subordinate your ego. And I think that's totally true of, effective leaders in general, right? Um, And there's so many books and entire philosophies like based on that, right? I mean, like 
what is Zen Buddhism other than subordinating the ego, right? Like, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, that's true. Um, I mean, it's lots of other things for sure, but like, you know, it's, no, but that's it's a central huge, that's, tenet. That's kind of the core of it. Yeah. yeah. Right. And, you know, like Ryan Holiday has a book, I think. I believe it's Ryan Holiday, right? Ego's Enemy. Yeah. Um, that's a great book. Yeah. There's, there's tons of these, like, it, it's a well known thing, but you still don't see it that often. I mean, the reality is that most leaders are bad at their jobs. Yeah, it, that is true. It, and it's, yeah. No, go ahead. No, it's just rare and striking when you have a good leader. Right. Right. It, it yeah, it's like shocking. And, and not yeah. only that, most leaders are not being conscious about how to be better at being leaders. And I think most people are not thinking in a structured way about how to be better at what it is that they do. Um, not that they don't want to be better. I think most people want to be better. Um, the question is, are you thinking about that in a concrete way? Right? Yeah. Yeah. This is a question of like deliberate practice. Um, I, I definitely think you're right about that. And I think with some things, even more than others, there's a perception that it's not something that's learned. It's something that's innate. And for, for leadership, I think in particular, people have this sense that like, it's about charisma. It's about like rhetoric it's about like arousing speeches it's about being commanding it's about having all the right answers and none of those things are true right. uh, and also leadership is like very learnable um in in certain ways um yeah but even outside of leadership like even in um like a jiu-jitsu context like i've noticed that a lot of people like don't don't use deliberate practice like they show up and they just think they'll get better over time by osmosis and they will. But it's it's not that many people who show up with like a plan. Like I'm going to work this position, this move, this move, and I'm going to see what happens. And then I'm going to iterate, you know, like, yeah. Um, whereas that's how you can get good quickly because then, or quicker, uh, because then you're actually like gaining traction on something. Right. No, and, and making those plans and working towards them in a concrete way is super important. And I think people don't really think about that. You know, it's advice that I got uh, when I was first starting my career from a venture capitalist who I had the chance to talk to at some like internship event or something. And he talked about the five-year plan and how even though you're not going to follow it, it's, it's valuable to make. And I think he's totally right, you know, and that's something that I I talk about all the time with the junior more junior members on my team um it's like hey like you're in a good spot you know you've gotten better in xyz ways over the last six months or over the last year but where are you trying to get to next and what are the concrete things you're going to do to get there because we need yeah. you to do more right like you're doing pretty well but we need you to do really well um i need That's to be inspiring. able to hand things off to you right i i yeah cannot be spending my time you know, working on, you know, whatever the case may be at the time, X, Y, Z on you. So what skills do you need to build to get there? Right. And, um, how can we be concrete about that? Yeah. Yeah. That, that's, and, and that's actually a technique he mentions in this book, which is like, if you have a subordinate that's underperforming, there's a couple of things you can do. You know, one is you can take some office plate. Maybe he's over, overstretched. Uh, if you take stuff off his plate, he'll, he'll be less overstretched. Maybe he'll perform better. Maybe it'll, it'll kind of galvanize him because he'll be like, 
you know, challenged by that. He'll be like, like, what, what do you mean I can't do this thing? But for some people, putting more on their plates is actually paradoxically a way to like get better work out of them and get them to like listen to you and engage. Um, right. And I think you and I are both like that where, you know, when people are like, hey, we really need you to step up and do this thing. It's like really energizing for us, you know? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah, like I feel inspired just hearing you talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think another one that he talks about kind of related to that is making people feel like they're important. Um, he has this section called the most important member of the team. And he talks about how, you know, he would go through his SEAL platoon and he would tell everyone on the team that they were the most important person of the team because at times they are, you know. Like, as an example, he would go, and and so I like this quote, you know, explain to them what happens if they don't do their jobs well. Explain to them, even the people with the most menial jobs, how their little jobs fit into the big picture and the strategic mission. Everyone has the most important job. Let them know that. You know, and it's totally true, right? Like, people feel like you know, certain jobs are more important or more prestigious or more interesting than others. But the reality is that like, you know, all functions have to be firing on all cylinders for a high performing organization, you know, to take a broad view in a startup, right. Instead of looking at a small team view, if you have a great product team and a great engineering team, but you have on the enterprise side, a terrible sales team, or on the consumer side, a terrible growth and and marketing team, you're not going to be successful. And if you are successful somehow, like there've been very few, but there's a few cases of amazing products that just like somehow succeed without good growth and marketing. Um, Yeah. The potential success you could have if you actually invested in those areas is much higher than where you're at today. It's that's very true and like i think in the startup world especially but in any context like it's easy to become parochial based on your background you know you you came up as a sales leader so you're like you know what these code monkeys like whatever you know it's all about sales we can we can sell anything they just need to hurry and get their job done you know like i've worked in environments like that where there's a lot of like tension and disrespect because the leader has a certain background and they like don't have an appreciation for the value that all the different disciplines bring to the team. Right. Um, and that's not good for anyone, but it's it's more expected and less damaging for junior members of teams who are like functional, you know, like a junior designer who thinks that the designers are the big user advocates, not realizing that sales and customer success talk to users way more than they do. Right. Um, that's not the worst thing, but when it's the leader, it's like really corrosive. Right. Um, so, so here's the thing, right? What that sales leader should be doing is instilling, installing very strong and very opinionated and intelligent engineering and product leaders to push back on him because, or, or her, yeah, because she knows that her background is sales and she's going to be looking at the world from that view, but having, so, so she needs people who are going to give her the other perspective, give it to her straight. And that tension is what's going to yield a great organization. 
That's another thing he talks about is like, you don't want to surround yourself with yes men as a leader. In fact, a yes man is the worst possible thing you could have as a leader. It's in my opinion, much better to have someone who is kind of an asshole, really annoying, but will at least be honest with you, even if they're always ornery, than someone who is always cheerful, but will always agree with you, will never tell you the truth. Now, obviously, there's a sweet spot where like you don't have to be an asshole all the time and you also shouldn't be a yes man. Um, but I'm just saying as, yeah. as a leader, like if I have to choose between the two, give me the guy who's going to, who's going to shoot straight, you know, every time. Yeah. True. Truth is really important. Um, and, and he talks about that too, where like this whole thing about communication, like it comes down to trust and trust comes from truth, you know? Um, he also talks about like tactful truth and like our dad always has this phrase, which is like, you know, some people who are brutally honest take more pleasure in the brutality than the honesty, you know? Yeah. Um, so there's something with that too. Like, you know, I, I know one person who like has great ideas and is super crucial, but the way they deliver them alienates so many people that like the message doesn't get through. Right. You know? um, and it's, it's a real shame. And like, Different people are different as far as how thick their skin is, you know? Yeah. Um, so you kind of have to, like, learn about that. And this is one of those things where it's, like, not what you want to hear. You want to hear, hey, like, just say it like it is and, like, fuck everybody. You know what I mean? If they can't handle it, then they should work somewhere else. But the reality is, like, if you want to be effective, you have to get the message across. <laughs> right. You know, in a way that they can register. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. No, I, I totally agree with that. Um, and, and that's like, yeah. So that's something that you, you know, as a contributor, as a leader can think about and, and try to deliver messages tactfully. Totally agree with that. I guess my point is just like, as a leader, if I'm like drafting people and I have to choose between this person who is always pleasant and the person who is always honest i will choose always honest but i prefer someone who understands how to tactfully defer deliver messages uh as well yeah yeah i i, I would agree with you on that so i was talking to uh, jules about this last week where i was like i have a perception of myself as like very thick-skinned and like i take feedback really well Mm-hmm. But I have a feeling if someone was like truly dickish to me, it would probably like raise the hairs on the back of my neck, you know, and I'd probably get like pretty, uh, pretty feisty in reality. So I think at least for myself, I overestimate the degree to which I'm thick skinned. I think I am more thick skinned than average, but probably yeah. less than I think. Yeah. Yeah. I could definitely see that. I think for me in a way, I have kind of the opposite problem where I think I'm pretty thick skinned and, and that's fine. But I also think of myself as a very straight shooter. And I think I'm much less of a straight shooter than I give myself credit for. I think I have a real tendency to couch things and err too much on the side of delivering the message softly to the point where, or tactfully to the point where I've delivered the message so tactfully that you don't even know what it is that I said. (laughs) So that's actually something that I'm working on very concretely in my work right now is like, how can I be more get more comfortable with being very direct with people when it gets to that point yeah yeah i think um i don't think that's easy i don't think it's easy to have those hard conversations with folks um 
yeah. Again, I, I, I like to think of myself as the kind of person who just will jump right in there and be like, hey, you know, here are some things we need to improve. Uh, here's why. Here's the importance of this. Here's what I think, you know, your intentions were. I don't think you had bad intentions. But the reality is like, yeah, it's very easy to couch or defer the conversation. Uh, and it's kind of a subtle problem because it's like, what should you spend leadership capital on, you know? Right. Um, there's a real dichotomy there where it's like, if you let the little things slide, do you build a culture of like indiscipline, you know? Right. Um, like in Sparta, the penalty for losing your shield was death because by losing your shield, you created like a, a gap in the line. And as a result, like there was never a gap in the line among the Spartans. Right. Right. So it's, it's this whole challenging dichotomy. Yeah. Absolutely. Let me go put this guy in the pen real quick. Okay. Because he's just like whining and trying to get these different toys. <laughs> Sounds good. Come on. Back. Give him some fruit to distract him. Nice. I don't know where these clips showed up, show up, but I marked a clip and I'll mark another clip so that you can more easily edit that out. Yeah. Okay. Ooh. Thank you. Yeah. You, you know th this topic right here, though, the topic of uh, accountability and having hard conversations. There are a number of books on this that are supposed to be really good, like Crucial Conversations, Crucial Accountability. Um, there's another one called Connect by some like Stanford GSP professors who have run a course called Touchy Feely. Mm -hmm. um, I think doing those three on the podcast at some point would be really useful for us and also for our listeners. Yeah. I totally agree with that. I totally agree with that. So switching gears a little bit to a different section, one of the things I really liked that really spoke to me was this section about know what is important and what isn't. So I'll read a couple of little ex excerpts from that section. So one of the things that distinguishes a black belt in jujitsu from a white belt is the black belt's understanding of what is important and what isn't. A black belt sees past insignificant movements, ignores trivial actions, and focuses on what actually matters. It goes a little bit forward. A good commander ignores things that will not have an actual impact on the battle. And then a little bit further again, they say he says, I see leaders get caught up all the time in things that do not matter. They waste their time and energy on meaningless events or minor problems that will not impact the overall results they are trying to achieve. A black belt in jiu-jitsu is a master of energy conservation. Not one movement is wasted defending against attacks that do not matter. Leaders must learn to do the same thing. Hmm. <clears throat> yeah, I definitely like that. 
because um, that also is kind of part of what you should waste leadership capital on or not, you know? Right. I think for me, you know, this is a huge problem for me. Um, so, so to give some background on the situation I'm in, you know, I, I'm on a team that is scaling fairly rapidly. Um, it was, you know, like a year and a half ago, it was probably three of us um, with, my now boss is kind of the lead and, you know, me as the next guy and then one pretty junior guy. And now we've got, uh, I don't know, I think we're at eight or nine folks on the team and my boss has moved into more directly managerial role. And, you know, I, I've taken on some of those lead kind of tech lead type responsibilities. Um, so what I've found is that I'm constantly swamped with a million tasks to do. There's never a time where I don't have things to do. Um, and when I was reading this earlier, you know, I read that that section and I was like, wow, this is something that I'm totally fucking up right now. <laughs> like, yeah. this is something that I always get, you know, I, I try to do everything. And the reality of that is that I end up spending tons of time on things that don't matter, right? Like, and especially if you put it in context of like the strategic initiatives of the company and then the team, right? Like, you know, this little minor bug or going off on this rabbit hole or even spending time like, you know, with this team member on this thing, like, is this the most effective use of my time to move the company's strategic goals forward? And taking that higher level view of like my day-to-day -day prioritization, I think is something that would be hugely beneficial for me and for the team. Um, you know, I only read that like yesterday or the day before, so I haven't really put it into practice much yet, but I just, that one really like stuck out to me. I was like, damn, like this is something that, again, it sounds obvious, right? It's like only do things that matter, but there's a million things, right? And the reality is like how many of those things actually matter? And I like the way he had this framework as well that he was talking about like how to so like what you should ask before you dive into a problem as a leader. So how will this problem impact the team's strategic goals? Can it cause mission failure? Is it worth my time and effort to engage in it? How bad can it get if I leave it alone? I think that last yeah. one is a super important question to ask because I think often the answer is, yeah, it's worth your time to engage in it. Uh, it might impact the strategic goals, but to what degree? And if I just leave it yeah. alone or I leave it for the next person or I assign it to someone else on the team, you know, maybe it's it's not that bad. <clears throat> Agree. And in fact, in your case, like it's also building capacity in, for the other people in your team, you know, getting them more familiar with the code base, building trust with them, building the relationship, understanding what they can and can't do. Uh, so by pulling back and doing less, you're actually like, you know, boosting the overall productivity of the team in the long run, potentially. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I thought that was a, that was a good one as well. Yeah, that also speaks to detachment. So like detachment is like kind of the a core part of Jocko's leadership philosophy. Um. And in his context, like the nice thing about the military context is it's very like concrete, so it's easy to understand. 
But let's say you have a squad and they're all like super focused on the enemy and they're all like, you know, aiming their weapons downrange and like firing. And nobody sees that like there's another enemy element coming around the corner to flank them and kill them all. Like, whereas if the commander, instead of looking downrange and being right at the front, took a few steps back and like, you know, pointed their gun upwards and looked around, they would see that that enemy element's coming towards them. They would see that there's like terrain they could take advantage of they would see that they need to call like external support. So in our case, like in your case, it's like taking a step back from those, those daily tasks that come up and being like, okay, from the like high altitude view, what's going to be most important? What's going to build capacity in the team? What's going to get junior people up to speed? Um, yeah. So yeah, it's a super important skill. No, I definitely agree. Um, and there's a bit of a, a, a dichotomy or a catch-22 there as well, because it's like, so when someone's really new, right, when they're really junior and they can't really, you know, maybe they're not at the point where they get stuff done and they need a lot of training, you have to invest tons of time and effort to get them up to speed. And you may not have the ability to take that step back and really look up and out. You know, he talks about, he says it a few times in the book, but as a leader, you you want to be looking up and out, not down and in towards the team, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, so it's interesting as you, especially something that I was seeing as you scale a team quickly, it's like you kind of have to be down and in for a while at least until you can build up the capability and the capacity in the team where they're more self-policing, where they understand things, where they're all taking ownership. And then you can say, okay, let me look up and out. Um, but one interesting thing about that as well is like, so I look at, this is an interesting thing that I've been thinking about that I actually haven't shared before. So I, you know, I, I think about the military context, especially when you're reading Jocko's books, because he talks about it. He, that's his background, right? So I relate like, you know, what I'm doing to, to those things. And I think a technical lead on a team, on an engineering team, is like a senior NCO or a non-commissioned officer in a military okay. squad. Yeah. That's how I look at that role. And, and, and what okay. I mean by that is like, you are, you are still responsible for doing the yeah. core work that has to be done. And you're responsible for right. significant portions of that lift, but you're yeah. also responsible for making sure that everyone else gets their shit done and knows what to do. So in a way yeah. your job is to look down and in, um, in right. that role, but not fully. Right. But, but it's just different yeah. scales. So one thing yeah. that I've been thinking yeah. about is like, what can I do to allow my boss to really look up and out? Right. Um, yeah. and part of that is like taking on more of the looking down and in right now, as we build capacity on the team. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, I think that's actually a very apt comparison because like, you know, the enlisted guys have like technical specialties, right? Like they're the radio man or the sniper or the point man, whereas the officer, you know, <clears throat> while they have an MOS, like they're not like operating the gear in the same way, or they don't know how to like, you know, plan to demolition charge and this kind of thing. Right. So it is, it is kind of more analogous to maybe like product manager um, in that context. Um, 
though with additional seniority, like if you're the CTO, obviously you, you know, you're even more high altitude zoomed out. Yeah. Uh, you're not really in that, like, you know, uh, in that role. But I think the tech lead example works well for NCO too, because you're setting the culture. You're, you're, it's not just what to do, it's how to do it. What's the standard? You know, what does it mean to actually read and accept a PR? Like, what is the code quality standard on this team, you know? Right. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so I thought that was an interesting thing as well. And I, I think that's a similar thing for, you know, other teams as well, right? Like, it may not be as formalized as the role of, like, a tech lead, but... You know, you have design leads um, within any organization, right? Like, even if it's not on paper, right? Like, you may have the same title as a bunch of people in your org, but it can become pretty clear pretty quickly who the lead really is, right? Who's setting the culture and 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 what's actually going on? Um, yeah, especially to the people on the ground. So, you know, I think that's something to think about as uh, you know either a leader on paper or, or a leader in practice is like, you know, what really is your role and, and what can you do that'll make the team most successful? Yeah. <clears throat> and how can you shift between these different modes as the situation calls for it? Like I expect if we were having this conversation in six months to a year, I'm going to need to be looking much more up and out than I am today because I'm going to have built up, you know, like my team has, will have understood and gotten onboarded to the point where I can afford to do that, right? Yeah. And I'll have that trust yeah. that, that they can do that. And that's actually what I was telling one, one of the people the other day as well. Is like, you know, what I was telling you earlier where I was like, hey, I need you to do this so that I can do that. That's what I told him. It's like, I need you to do this so that I can go work on other stuff so I can go help other people on the team. And, you know, our boss needs us to both do that so that he can look up and out and he can go look at the structural problems that are causing us to, you know, ship code more slowly. He can go figure out, you know, how we need to improve our tooling, how we can need to improve our processes, how we can, you know, look at our roadmap and um, get better at that. But if he's yeah. on a day-to-day -day basis involved in making sure that, you know, this task is getting done or this um, escalation is getting properly handled, you know, we're never going to get to our peak performance. Yeah, that's so true. That, that's so true. And, and that, that also goes to something Jocko talks about in this book, which is like, whenever possible, explaining to people like, why, you know, like, why are you telling him to take on this extra load? Well, here's why, because like, you're trying to like, look up and out to help cover your boss so that he can then do that and then support you guys in all these other meta ways. You know, it's like when, when you understand the why you're much more likely to buy in. Um, and generally speaking, like another really important principle in this book related to that is decentralization. So when you generate the plan, you know why you, you know the why, cause you came up with it. So like as much as possible, Jocko, tries to create situations where other people are coming up with the plans. Now, ideally that's his subordinates, but it might also be his boss, you know? So if it's not going to damage the mission of the team, like if, it, if it's 80% of the way there, he'll run with whoever else's plan in order to help them buy in, help them have a more intimate understanding of like why things are being done the way they're being done, feel more agency. 
Yeah, I think that's super important. I think it's also really easy to, especially as a new leader, to overcorrect people. You know, it's like he talks about this, like if it's 80%, that's good enough. Just let him do it. If it's yeah. like 60%, maybe give him a few pointers to help him get it to 70, 80%. If it's like 50%, 40%, okay. Like we probably need to intervene. But even then it's like, ask them questions until they understand the problem, right? With their plan. Um, I think it'd be very easy to look at like minor things that you would have done differently and say, hey, do it this way, do it that way, uh, which isn't necessarily productive. Yeah, and it yeah, definitely it's, doesn't it's, help with it's very ownership. true. Sorry. No, 100%. Um, I, I, th- I think you're I think you're so right. And um, again, it's easy to get in this headspace where it's like, yeah, but this is the best plan. Right? Like, this is the right way. But the reality is like, if it's a way that the other person can't buy into, and run with, if it's a way that's not building their capacity, if it's a way that's not giving them ownership, if it's a way that's going to decrease their morale over time, if it's going to make them feel disrespected, um, then it's not the right solution, even if it's technically 20% better, you know? Right. Um, but it's a real temptation, right? To be like, I'm the smart guy. I have the answer. Yeah. You know? Right. No. Yeah. Uh, and w- what you said about questions too, I think is really important where <clears throat> one of the like most important tools in, in this leadership approaches toolkit is really questions. Like as a new leader, you don't need to have all the answers, ask questions, understand what people do, understand why people are making the decisions they're making. If someone is, you know, promotes a plan and it's 60% of the way there, instead of telling them how to get it to 80%, ask questions that reveal the flaws in the plan. Let them improve the plan by answering your questions, you know? Right. Right. Yeah, I think the challenge with some of this I've found similar to you is um, when things get busy, when deadlines are impending, it can be a lot quicker to be like, okay, let me do the thinking. I'll give you a version of this that's like easier. And then you can take that and, you know, run with it from there. And that's not the right answer, really, because that's not what people want. People have a lot of capacity. They want to own it from end to end. They want to do the interesting stuff. They want to do the stuff where they get to really think about it. Um, but recently I have found at times just because of the the time pressure and stuff, I've, I, I've reverted to like, I'll, I'll do the intellectual heavy lifting on this. Uh, you help me get it over the line, you know? Um, so I need to take a step back and try to make more space to, you know, defer that to like other folks. Yeah, I I agree with that for sure. And I I find that as well um, happening to me. But I also think that there is a legitimate time and place where that is the correct course of action. Um, You know, if things are high priority enough, if the deadline is pressing enough, you know, sometimes it can make sense to say like, okay, I, for where we are right now today, I have to just do this. It's not the best long-term option, but given our short-term constraints, it is the only option. 
Um, but I think those instances should be few and far between, and you should be actively working to minimize them. I, I think you're right about that. <clears throat> I think you're right about that. Um, and in our case, it was probably a borderline case. Like, you know, we had a an important externally imposed deadline coming up in a few weeks. So it was like, maybe, you know, you know, honestly, the, the best thing to do would have been set uh, a two or three hour long meeting. And during that meeting, lay the groundwork with my subordinate. Yeah. Because <clears throat> I spent that time doing it anyway. So if instead of me just doing it alone, I pulled him in. And instead of me saying, okay, here's what I think. I would flip that and just ask, here's what, what, like, what do you think? You know, here's a prompt. What do you think? Here's this information. Here's this context. And even that right there might've given him a much greater sense of ownership. And that might've gotten better ideas um, for the project. So I'll have to think about that in the future. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. But I think you're, you're right. And um, <clears throat> Jocko's example of this is... Um, like if you're walking down, you know, you're patrolling in Iraq and you're actively taking fire and, you know, you yelled at like a, a team member, you know, lay down suppressing fire. That's not the moment for him to be like, why do you, sure, but like, why do you want me to do that? You know? <laughs> yeah. Like that's the time for him to just do it. But he says like, what will make him do it in that moment is trust and the relationship you've built up. Right. Right. Yeah. So another thing I thought was interesting was he has a section on clear guidance. So he says, you know, if your subordinate leaders or frontline troops aren't doing what you want them to do, the first person you should check is yourself. The most likely cause of this problem is unclear or misaligned guidance. And then later he says, it's also important to ensure that the guidance given at every level of leadership is aligned. So I think that's an interesting one. And that's another one that's really easy to not do super effectively. Um, because the reality is like, no matter how aligned you and your, you know, your leader may be, there's going to be differences between your personalities, your leadership styles, and your beliefs and decisions in a certain extent. And when you have someone junior, especially someone really junior, um, it's really important that you get aligned with your leadership and make sure that you're all telling the same story. Because if not, they can get very like confused about what it is they're actually supposed to do and why and how. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I've seen that play out a few times, you know, I've seen that play out with myself, you know, not being aligned with my leader exactly and, and giving slightly different advice. And I've seen that, you know, when I was super new, um, I wasn't subject to this too much, but I had another peer who was super junior as well at that time. And he kept feeling like he was, you know, he would go to one tech league, get one answer, go to the other one, get another answer. And he wouldn't know what to do. And that would kind of freeze him, you know, now for me, like very naturally, my response to those situations is, okay, this leader's telling me this, that leader's telling me that 
let me get them all in a room and let them argue it out. <laughs> <laughs> that's wise. <laughs> and I think that is actually the right approach if, if that's the situation you're in as a subordinate. But, yeah. you know, just as a leader, it's it's something that you don't think about all the time, but, but it's important. Yeah, and clarity of guidance in and of itself. <clears throat> At times, that can be a challenge where it's like you have this kind of host of feedback that needs to be implemented or that you're sharing. And it's easy for some part of it to get dropped, you know, like, oh, this aspect was missed, that aspect was missed. Um, and I think a lot of that comes down to the organization and format of the feedback and the simplicity of it. You know, like, can you organize it at a high level into like several buckets that are like easy to grasp? It's like, okay, there are three things that need to be done. There's like, whatever in the design context, the, the hierarchy needs to be tweaked, the layout needs to be tweaked. Uh, and we need to change the copy of the CTAs, right? Um, and then under each of those buckets, like you organize it in a way that's actually like easy to reference back to, easy to grasp. Um, yeah. Because otherwise it can just cause frustration. And like if, if something gets dropped, it undermines trust, you know, with your with the rest of your team. Right. Um, it was important to be watchful of that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, it speaks to the power of simplicity at large too, which is another like kind of core principle for for Jocko. Um, just keep things simple, you know. Keep keep your guidance simple. Keep your plans simple. Keep the team structure simple if you can. Um, and in the startup context, this is like super relevant because we have limited resources, we have limited time, we need to garner the maximum impact we can with the limited resources and time we have. So we focus on one primary persona. We have one primary retention metric. You know, we, we try to like build out a clear point of differentiation. Um, and we don't try to boil the ocean and do everything at once. Um, so it translates very well in that sense. It really does. And I think it's a mistake that I've seen otherwise really excellent, really experienced veteran leaders make um, repeatedly, where they just, they might in their head have a clear vision of where they want to go. But the frontline people have no idea what that vision is. And they don't make the the leaders don't invest in making it clear. And the impact of that is like, Every day, every frontline individual is making, you know, tens of decisions, at least, you know, um, tactically, right? Every day you're making tons of decisions. So if you have, you know, even a hundred person company and, you know, out of that, what, maybe 12 people are managers, right? Maybe out of a hundred person company, like maybe 15, right? Yeah. So you have like, what, call it 85 individual contributors, right? Mm -hmm. Each of those people are making 10 decisions a day, say, right? Mm -hmm. That's 850 decisions a day. In a week, that's 4,000 individual tactical decisions that have been made. If your commander's intent is not clear, I mean, how are you going to get everyone pulling in the same direction, right? Every single one of those decisions, they should be able to make with the clear background of what direction the organization is pulling in very concretely. And that's not really something I've seen on many teams before. 
Um, I think it's unusual for the commander's intent to be extremely clear up and down the organization, especially as organizations grow larger. But, you know, this problem's even worse in a bigger organization, right? I mean, if you have 500 uh, employees, which is still a relatively small company, right? It's not like a huge mm-hmm. company. Uh, I mean, how many decisions is that tactically being made on, on a daily basis, on a weekly basis? Yeah. And in a small company, like the weight of those decisions can be very high, you know, because like it's not diluted by other decisions. Um, And like another point there is like how quickly the tactical becomes strategic. Um, So for example, a Navy SEAL gets in a bar fight in Hong Kong. Now it's international news. Yeah. You know, like stinger missiles get sent to Ukraine. It's, It's an infantry weapon. It's like one guy's holding this weapon and walking down the street, but it changes the strategic calculus and the efficacy of tanks like in the theater, um, you know, in the case of Google and Waymo, right. With, with like the IP situation there, um, you know, you're, you're not careful about how you're, you're sharing IP and storing IP. And like now, like a large chunk of your company's stock is owned by a competitor. Um, you know, a small scale individual decision or individual set of decisions all, all of a sudden like cascades into something like much larger. Um, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, so there's a lot of good stuff in this book and I think like it has a nice like table of contents uh where you can kind of just look at it and refer back to it and say like okay, you know, here's a situation that I'm dealing with. Like let me see if there's anything in this book that I could pull from. Uh I think that's pretty helpful. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. Um, one one connection uh, that I made when I was reading this book for the second time is he talks about like mutiny. Like, what do you do if you um, <clears throat> if you disagree with what your boss is saying? You know, and he talks about the fact that like in the Navy, mutiny is punishable by death, <laughs> so it's a pretty serious thing. But more importantly, he talks about the fact that like if you go head to head and just say, no, I'm not going to do this, you lose influence. You know, like one of several things will happen. Like one thing that could happen is the boss shuts down and stops listening to you. Another thing that can happen is you have enough trust and they listen. Another thing that can happen is like, they replace you with somebody who's just a yes man, who's going to like rubber stamp it and just carry it out in the worst possible way. Um, So what Jocko recommends with those situations is like, ask questions, try to point out the flaws in the plan, you know, try to get on the same page with your boss, try as hard as you can. um, And then really think about it and make your decision at in the end, like what you want to do. Yeah. So let me ask you, have you in your career ever been in a position where you had to, or, or you were thinking about just refusing to do something? And how did you handle that, if so? <clears throat> well, yeah, let, let me see. You, usually what I've tried to do is I've tried to get on the same page, you know? Um, I, I've done this, like, to varying degrees of success over time. Like, I would say when I haven't had big um, personality conflicts, in most cases, I've been able to kind of, like, talk my way there you know either mm-hmm. i'm wrong or they're wrong there is a solution that's 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 gonna work and we kind of like 
talk our way there and, and figure it out. There's been times where I've done a really bad job where I've just, uh, you know, gotten emotional and like, um, been like, no, you know what, this is the right way to do it. And what you're suggesting is going to be really damaging. And like, it's cost me a lot of influence, you know, like I worked at one company where I did exactly that, where, <clears throat> um, the leader was trying to like, get me to design our, um, our landing page with no reference to like the content that was going to be on the landing page. So how would you do that? <laughs> like, <laughs> like you wanted me to just like put a bunch of pictures on there with like no like information hierarchy or no user intent or like sense of like what questions people will have, what's most confusing about the product, what's compelling about the product. <laughs> just Laura so, Mipsum and some pictures. Right, right. Which is not the way you should do that. And in that case, it's very important because like, you know, it's, it's a means for us to convert customers and I want our company to succeed, you know? Um, but I handled it really badly. You know, I got emotional and I, um, I argued it out with them and, uh, guess what? Like if you're arguing with your CEO, uh, or with, you know, senior leader, you're not going to win. You might emotionally validate yourself. You might feel really good. Like, Oh, I really told him I made a great statement but you're not going to win. Right. Um, so it's either you influence them or, or bust, uh, pretty much. Um, though there's one other approach which Jocko doesn't advocate, but he says like, basically he's like, if you have to do this, do it, you know? And that approach is Colonel Dick Winders, uh, 101st airborne, the band of brothers, you know, um, right before they were slated to like leave Europe. These guys were at D-Day. They fought all the way through Europe. They had tons of casualties right before they were about to leave. Their commanding officer is like, Hey, you guys have to go and like do this mission. And in his head, he's like, okay, this mission is not really going to accomplish anything. We're about to leave. We've made it this far. I don't think we should do this mission. People could get, could get killed and probably will. So what he does is like, instead of, fighting his boss, he's like, sounds good. And then he just doesn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> and Jocko, you know, takes pains to point out that Dick Winters was not like a rebellious guy who was like always saying no and like always like, you know, skirting the lines. But when it counted, he built enough leadership capital to be like, you know what, I'm going to put my ass on the line. If they, if they call me out on this, fine. But, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to do what I have to do to like, ensure the best possible outcome here right so yeah no i think that's a really good point and and yeah i think like all of those techniques you know in terms of either refusing to do it or saying you will and doing something different should be like break the glass kind of procedures yeah so i was thinking about this and i think i've done it once um there's one time i could think of that i was you know there was something being done in a certain way that I strongly disagreed with. And I felt that there was risk to our customer and, and risk to our company that I was at at the time. If, you know, I signed off on this or if I proceeded with this and that was the one time where I took the nuclear option and I was like, and I just escalated it, you know, up the chain. I was like, this is what I think the risks are. Like, these are the facts. This is what I think the risks are. I'm unwilling to proceed with this. 
And I even said in that email, like, you know, you all on this email thread are more senior than me. Every person here has the authority to override me, but I will not sign off on this. Um, and that actually had a yeah. really good outcome that time. But I think part of that is, you know, building up the political capital over time and, and as a matter of course, not doing that, right? Like really focusing on relationships and building relationships. And like Jocko says, just doing the work, right? Like great leaders get mm-hmm. shit done. That's how you get elevated to a leadership yeah. position. Yeah, and honestly, that sounds a lot like Colonel Winters in, in that sense, because like you weren't doing this all the time. And, you, you know, you weren't like you hadn't marked yourself as a tortured genius. You're part of the team. You're contributing. You're working as hard as anyone, if not harder. You're, you know, doing the stuff day in, day out. And now you have the authority and the credibility to actually put your foot down when it counts, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think that's that's really, um, really important. Yeah, this, I don't know, reflecting on these situations just gets me thinking about questions, you know? Um, I, I think it's honestly worthwhile for us to do a couple of episodes on asking questions as a, as a mode of leading, coaching, eliciting better outcomes, um, you know, helping people kind of take ownership of things and run with things. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a couple of books on on that that I think would be valuable. The Coaching Habit the advice trap. Um, and I think there's some subtleties around that, you know, like you you need to, I think you need to ask questions and be genuinely curious. Yeah. You know, um, it's easy to like ask questions, but ask leading questions, ask questions, but ask questions, you know, in order to establish that you know what you're talking about and they don't, therefore they should listen to you or like defer to your expertise. But, you know, in both cases, people sense that and it doesn't make them feel heard and it doesn't get the buy-in. And these are like subtle psychological games that like we kind of have to play with ourselves to be like, what is our true intention? You know, like, can we truly open-mindedly ask the question and want to know the answer, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I think at least for me, yeah. I, I would love to read those books because I, you know, I think that's something that I've seen in a lot of great leaders who I admire and, and I would want to emulate. Um, you know, I, like my boss right now definitely comes to mind, our dad. Um, I think he does a yeah. really good job of asking those questions mm-hmm. that seem so incisive, you know, so well timed, well placed. Mm-hmm. But really, it's, you know, I think that's an outcome of, detaching and like observing the situation and coming from a place of, you know, I want to ask the question instead of I want to tell you what to do. Um, yeah. 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 yeah, I think that would be definitely very useful. Yeah. Which also is starting to prove out our thesis of like, talk, talk about simplicity, like focusing our scope for the podcast just a little bit, like even just on the topic of leadership, we've already come up with, these are not even on the book list. I don't think like, you know, these like four or five books we, we named that we can talk about. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. So it's a good sign. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, the other thing is like, we, you know, we were able to bring in a lot more of our experience and background into this than some of the previous episodes, you know, like in defense of politics, there wasn't a ton of like background that either of us have in politics. Right. 
but but here you know this is something that we do every day like i was literally like as i was reading this book i like read it out of order a little bit because i was like okay i have this conversation coming up you know today that oh this section is going to be helpful for me so let me read this then go to the conversation and then afterwards i'll read the rest of the book for the podcast (laughs) Um, so hopefully you guys found that valuable um today yeah, I agree. And like, even if you're not a leader at a startup, like this still applies to everything. You know, if you're if you're arguing with your spouse, detach, build a relationship, build trust. You know, if you're planning a road trip, keep it simple. You know, if you're um, if you need to go somewhere and you need a dog sitter, cover and move. Uh, you know, like you cover your friend, you dog sit for them, or you know, in my case, I cover you guys and cat sit for you. You guys help us out, you know? Yeah. Um, so this stuff applies to any situation where there's like more than one human being. Right. You know? Right. And and some situations where there's only one human being. Yeah, especially like, I mean, those ones I would say, especially if you're reading Extreme Ownership and it's like, you know, the yeah. detach, prioritize and execute, you know, keep it simple. Those things mm-hmm. apply whether or not you're in a team. Yeah, yeah. This this book in particular is probably better suited to someone who is in a leadership position or seeks to be in a leadership position, even if that's like, you know, thought leadership or functional leadership in the sense that, uh, you know, I've had roles before where I'm the only person in my discipline in the company. Mm -hmm. So I don't have a team, but I have to kind of like lead this area. Right. You know, And, and actually with situations like that, or if you're leading upwards, it, it imposes leadership best practices on you because you have to influence, you know, you, you can't command people to do stuff. You have to elicit, you have to influence, you have to build relationships. Um, so this book will help you even if that's your situation. Um, yeah, you know. definitely agree. My only recommendation is that if you have not read extreme ownership yet, do yourself a favor and when you're picking up this book, Leadership Strategy and Tactics, also pick up Extreme Ownership. Or if you have to choose between the two, I would say read Extreme Ownership because this really builds on Extreme Ownership a lot. And that book, again, I, like I think that book can literally change the trajectory of your career, especially if you're not someone who's ownership oriented initially. Like, yeah, If you read that and you internalize that, it will change your outcomes drastically. Yeah. 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 That's an interesting one. That That's a really good one. I absolutely agree with you. I think that that's the, that's the place to start for sure. Um, and that's an ongoing thing, you know, like even recently I was thinking about um, like when you're saying you're taking ownership, you know, mm-hmm. but then when other people are like, yeah, it is your fault. And then you're like, wait, 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 like internally, you kind of like really, you're like, yeah, bud, you know? Yeah. So it's like, there's like su- subtle psychological dynamics with that too, where it's like, are you really internalizing it? That it really is on you. It's all on you. You need to figure it out. Um, yeah, but it, it's a great book and it's the book that will spur that like, you know, lifelong journey of trying to like cement your agency and like take charge of your own affairs fully and like, you know have the empowerment to like make a big improvement in your life. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So 
if you guys like this episode, if you like the more, you know, if you liked hearing more about our backgrounds and us kind of tying stuff into what we do on a day-to-day basis, drop us a line at contact at rdmr.io or at rdmr underscore io on Twitter. We would love to hear from you. As always, we've been enjoying all of our conversations. Uh, we appreciated your strong feedback about whether or not we should roll with the rebrand. It sounded like most of you were really on board for it, but uh, there's a couple of you scallywags that were pretty angry talking about yeah, terrorizing yeah. Our, our houses and stuff. So that wasn't very cool, but, you know, we'll, uh, I appreciate your passion. <laughs> Yeah, we, we had some of those, uh, you know, people who go to like the shut up and write meetups who were like super pissed. <laughs> They're, like, you know, small town librarians. Yeah, furious. They really enjoyed our series on political science, but it's their loss. Well, friend, of the, friend of the show, Michael, is he still on board? I don't know. I need to reach out to him directly. I need to reach out to him yeah. directly. <laughs> Yeah, reach out to him and ask him because I still expect uh, multi-page like responses to these episodes. <laughs> <laughs> I take those very seriously. So, <laughs> shouts out, Michael. Go check out his. Uh, go check out his newsletter, Bite Leg, B Y T E L E G. I think he just dropped a new uh, article somewhat recently that. Uh, was actually actually maybe we should bring him on and see if he wants to talk about it because it was very relevant. I, I, it was um, Clayton Christensen's book, Innovators Dilemma. Oh, I love I love that book. Yeah, yeah. Let's definitely do that. Um, yeah, we could read that book and bring him on and talk about it. Yeah, Michael, if you if you hear this, that's a standing offer. Uh, let, let, let's get you on here. Yeah, that would be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. See you next week. Bye.